you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. We continue on in our series. Uh, this is the fifth message, and we are looking at verses uh, 18 through 21. Romans 1, 18 through 21, the wrath of God revealed. Lord, we do uh, thank you for your word now. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly, make the appropriate application, so lead by your spirit. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you're the ultimate teacher, but you use uh, human teachers in the process as well. So uh, be glorified as the word goes forth now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you'll note on the overhead uh, the outline of the book. The theme is the righteousness of God or the gospel of God. Of course, one involves uh, the other. But uh, we have worked our way through the prologue. We now come to the first doctrinal uh, section. And uh, that is in chapter 1, 18 through uh, chapter 3, verse 20, God's holiness and man's sinfulness. In the prologue, uh, Paul introduces himself in relation to the gospel that he preaches. Uh, this gospel emphasis uh, is right from the start and uh, puts the emphasis on who Christ is as Lord God has proven in the resurrection. And then Paul's other great emphasis is that this gospel must be responded to by faith. Paul says that the goal of his apostleship was for the obedience of faith. And then in the theme verses that we looked at last week in chapter 1, 16, and 17, Paul three times makes the issue that of faith. It's all over this prologue here. Uh, so note the obedience of faith uh, for everyone who believes from faith to faith, and the just shall live by faith. Strong emphasis on the gospel, you must respond to it by faith. Well, as a footnote, last week I inadvertently stated that Paul wrote Hebrews 10.38, which is something I hadn't realized up to that point. Uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Uh, you know, a lot of people think Paul did. If you've got to have somebody, Paul's not a bad one, but, but I inadvertently spoke. Uh, after his uh, gospel introduction in the prologue, Paul then, in his systematic presentation of the gospel, and by the way, Romans is the most systematic presentation of the gospel that we have in the New Testament, but he begins by developing the truth that we're all sinners. People need to be right with God, but the problem is that in our natural state, we are not. In relation to the gospel, the first thing people to know is that they're not right with God. They must first and foremost be made aware that they lack righteousness before God. In Paul's development of the gospel, the bad news comes before the good news. People need to know why they need a Savior. And that's where Paul starts. And of course, this is uniform. It's consistent all the way through the Scriptures. Back in Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all as an unclean thing. All, not some, all our righteousnesses, all the right things about us are like filthy rags. And then in the New Testament, uh, Paul in his personal testimony in Philippians 3 says, And be found in him not having mine own righteousness. I don't have any right thing to present to God. Say, well, this is, what I, this is my presentation. There's no righteousness. There's no right things to present to God that will be acceptable, that will make you right with God. He says, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, keeping all the rules, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. I'm right with God on what basis? Faith. So we have no righteousness of our own to offer God. Zero. None. 
we through and through are soiled and stained by sin. And even if you're not as bad as someone else, you're still a complete sinner. Uh, The only way to acquire a righteousness, a right standing before God is by faith. This is God's way. We are justified by faith. As I like to say, just by faith. We are justified just by faith. Bible Knowledge Commentary, righteousness is God's response toward faith or trust. Wrath is his reaction to godlessness and unrighteousness. So Paul, at great length, first and foremost, develops the fact that all are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the conclusion. And there is no exception. All need Jesus, the only Savior that God has provided is Jesus. We need to come to faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Paul presents his case like a trial lawyer, showing that the pagans, the moralist, and the religionists are all equally under the condemnation of sin. So here's, here's the, the whole story in a nutshell. The whole world is guilty before God. Here's how he develops his case. Uh, 1, 18 through 32, depraved pagans. And all the morals and the religious said, oh yeah, those pagans, they're wicked, they're on their way to hell, let's get our signs out and march on them. <laughs> yeah, Paul says, yeah, but uh, what about uh, the hypocritical moralists, chapter 2, 1 through 16? Yeah, they too are under condemnation. And then what about those self-righteous religionists? You know the people that go to church every day, pay tithes. Uh, yeah, the self-righteous religionists, they, they too are under kind of 2, 17 through 38. And then the conclusion of the whole matter, 3, 9 through 20, the whole human race. All, all have sinned. Uh, Spurgeon, you know, good quote here. When you feel yourself to be utterly unworthy, then you have hit the truth. The world hates this reality. I mean, seriously, there must be something here for us. No, no righteousness to offer God. You are totally through and through and through unworthy. When you feel yourself to be utterly unworthy, you've hit the truth. I mean, very, very humbling. And we're all humbled before the cross. Well, as we transition from the prologue that concludes in verse 17 to the first doctrinal section beginning at verse 18... We note that while there is a change in subject, there is also a parallel with what Paul has just stated, and this common denominator is the word revealed. In verse 17, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. But then in verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Revealed in both cases is in the present tense, meaning it is an ongoing revelation. The righteousness of God is put on display in the lives of people of faith. As he says, from faith to faith. In contrast, the wrath of God is put on display in the lives of the ungodly. And that is where we now go in our study. Let's pick it up. Chapter 1 and verse 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Moody Bible Commentary says, For explains why salvation is available only by faith. People are not able to establish a right standing before God because sin sabotages the attempt. When Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, he is putting on the fact that this is from God. It's from heaven. The wrath of God emphasizes his personal anger. There is such an emphasis on God's love today. And many are offended by the idea that God could be angry with them. I mean, the idea of a wrathful God is foreign to many who claim to be Christian. They don't want that kind of a God. But God's wrath is in perfect accord with his holiness. People seem to want a loving God on their terms, but they don't want a holy God on his terms. Thankfully, he has made a, be, a way to be right with him on his terms. And what are his terms? By grace, through faith. That's the terms of God, as we see in Jesus Christ. But note, again, consistency in the Bible. Psalm 7, God is a just God, and God is angry with the wicked every day. You say, well, some days I think he smiles on me, and other days, you know. As a lost person, he is angry with the wicked every day. Now, the reason we're rejoicing as saints, as, as people who are forgiven, who know Jesus Christ, is we're not in this position. But the unbelieving world is. And he says, if he does not turn back, this is the idea, the, the concept of repentance. If they don't repent, if he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. I mean, they're in big trouble. If they don't repent, the hammer is going to come down. John three thirty six. he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's like the wrath of God is hovering over their life. And ultimately ends up in eternal damnation if they don't come to repentance. Well, the Bible speaks of God's wrath being revealed in two main ways. We could develop this other ways too, but uh, two main ways. Uh, there is a future coming day of the Lord judgment in which God's wrath will be direct and universal. You do realize that the world is on a collision course with judgment day. And it will be divine intervention that will be clear and undeniable. We read about this in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 18. I mean, a large section right there at the, end of the, at the end of the book. But in Revelation 6, they cry to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They know what's going on. This is a day of God's judgment. The great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? They're not ignorant. I mean, this is uh, all the peoples of the world are in view if you read the surrounding context. They realize the God who sits on the throne is angry. This is the day of the Lord's wrath, the day of judgment the world is headed for. But right now, we are not in the day of the Lord's judgment. I mean, this is Paul's whole point in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. This future day of the Lord's judgment is just that, future. 
Right now we live in the church age, which is also called the age of grace. Right now the door of grace is open and people are urged to respond now. Before the coming day of the Lord judgment commences. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The door of grace is open. But in contrast to this future day of judgment, is the wrath of God which is right now, present tense, being revealed. The manifestation of this wrath is indirect and, in essence, is God just letting people go and experience the natural consequences of their sin? We might call this the wrath of God's abandonment. Three times Paul will go on to say that he gives them over. Verse 24, 26, and 28. Instead of God actively and directly bringing judgment on them, he just lets them go. And the inevitable life consequences are a form of the wrath of God. Those consequences are developed in the chapter which include futile thinking. People can't think straight. You remove God from the equation, the craziest of things are thought. Futile thinking, idolatry, sexual perversion, and moral and relational brokenness. What's wrong with the world? Romans 1, there you go. It's pitiful. It's the wrath of God revealed from heaven. It's what happens when you walk away from the light that God has revealed. And we see it all around on every hand. People wonder what's wrong with the world. Well, here it is. When God gives people over to their sin, all the wheels come off the wagon. Kind of one at a time. And life gets really hard and ugly. That's kind of where we are in our whole post-Christian society. Taking the wheels off the wagon, getting rougher and rougher, and the, the consequences of this get harder and harder. Well, in our text today, Paul is developing the why. He is showing why God's wrath is presently being revealed. Later in the chapter, he will develop the what That is what it entails in terms of consequences. The wrath of God is the counterpart to his righteousness. Both are currently on display. God's righteousness is manifest in the lives of people of faith. And his wrath is manifested in the lives of the ungodly. Now, note the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Note, it doesn't say some, but rather all. There are no exceptions. Nothing is overlooked. One cannot say some evil things don't really matter before God. They all do. His wrath is revealed against all. That is every form of wrong. People love to compare, you know, right? I may be better than so-and-so. I might be worse than this person, but not as bad as another. And we probably all, in our brokenness, still have these kind of thoughts, right? Wrestle with this. 
But in truth, God's indictment is all-encompassing. There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. There is no holier than thou. I certainly do not stand before you as a holier than thou this morning. I am what I am by the grace of God entirely. And so is every saint. None are holy, not in our natural state. If we have righteousness, it's been imputed. It's been given to us because we've accepted Jesus as our Savior. Now, ungodliness is the idea of showing disregard or irreverence for God. You see, all sin starts with God. It is first and foremost a crime against God. Ungodliness speaks of a rebellious heart attitude towards God. It's a spirit of a rebel that defies God. We might call it an anti-God disposition. This person lives without regard for God and his authority. It is a lordship issue in that ungodliness defies God and his rightful place alone as God. It's got a problem with God, period. Unrighteousness is that which is not right. It is that which is wrong before God, all-encompassing. So these terms are closely related, although some tend to see the emphasis on ungodliness as essentially directed towards God, while unrighteousness is more broad, including wronging our fellow men. Well, that is certainly true in terms of basic emphasis, but again, these terms are intended, I think, to be broad-sweeping, involving all that violates God and His holy standards. And what do they do? Uh, what do the ungodly and unrighteous people do to evoke the wrath of God? Well, here's what they do. They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. You want to get in trouble with the world? Just take a stand on God's word. They hate it. And they do everything they can to cancel it. They have a problem with truth, with God's truth. They have a problem with absolute moral truth, which is God's truth. They have a problem with the Bible, the book of God's truth. They have a problem with the creation account. They have a problem with the truth of the flood. They have a problem with the God of the Old Testament who warns of coming judgment. They consequently have a problem with the God of the New Testament who happens to be the same God as found in the Old Testament as seen in the book of Revelation, which ties the whole Bible together. You see, we're involved in a truth war here. And when you're involved in a war, you can expect to get shot at if you are an active soldier. And I hope you are. I hope you're involved in the truth war. And uh, you know what your weapon of, is? It's, it's the truth. Uh, the world is at enmity with God and constantly seeks to suppress God's truth. And they do so in a way that is not fair or right. They do so in unrighteousness. You don't expect the world to fight fair. They serve their master, the devil, who never fights fair. Uh, They suppress it in unrighteousness, in ways that are not right. You say, well, they they certainly will be fair and consistent. No, they won't. (laughs) What are you talking about? We're constantly trying to get the message of God's truth out, and they are ever seeking to suppress it. And so there's great conflict over the truth. You don't have to do anything. Just just stand for truth. Yes, do it the most loving way you know how, but stand and you'll get shot at. 
There's great conflict over the truth. It is called spiritual warfare, which sometimes involves physical consequences. To suppress means to hold down, to restrain, to stifle. Instead of believing God's truth, rebel humanity resists it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to live according to it. This is a problem on a collision course with God's wrath being revealed. Now, God's truth is amazing. You know, people try to suppress it, but they can't eliminate it. Isn't that amazing? Through history, they've tried to snuff it out. All the powers of the world, controlled by Satan, constantly trying to snuff it out. Can't do it. I love this about the truth. You might kill me, but the truth marches on. Reminds me of the story about a little boy who smuggled his doggie into his bedroom, wanting the dog to spend the night in his room. Uh, The parents suspected that something was up, but before they got to the room, the little boy managed to hide his dog in his toy box and then sat on it. Well, as the parents came into the room, they asked what was up. The little boy, suppressing the truth, said, Oh, nothing. And about that time, a tail was heard thumping in the, tail, in the toy box. One can try to suppress the truth, but you can't do away with it. It keeps thumping. Thumping. Suppress! Suppress! Thump! Thump! Suppress! That's what the world's all about. They're constantly suppressing the thumping of God's truth. And God's truth is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. In the end, the truth of God will prevail. It's wonderful to be on the winning side. The world would love to do away with the truth, but they just can't get rid of it. And they hate that. In Psalm 2, they say, let us break God's bonds in pieces. Let us cast away his cords. You know, these these cords of truth. They hate God's rules, his moral law. They hate God's authority. This is totally a lordship issue. This is the great problem the world has with God. Instead of yielding to God for who he is, they insist on opposing and suppressing his truth. And he continues, verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Where Paul is going with this is to that little phrase, without excuse. As seen at the end of verse 20, people experience the wrath of God and they do so without excuse. They have no legitimate excuse. Now, accountability relates to knowing. And the point is, they know the reality of God, but they suppress and reject it. Now, sometimes people say, if only they knew. Paul's argument is that they do know, which is why they are without excuse. They know because what may be known of God is manifest. Not maybe, it is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. (laughs) Leaves you without excuse. Manifest is the idea of made plain, visible, or clear. In them refers to their heart, their mind, their conscience. 
You see, there is a God consciousness in the heart of every person. There are no true atheists. I like to say there's liars a multitude, but there are no true atheists. Only rebellious fools. God has so wired people that they come hardwired with knowing there is a supreme being, a higher power. God has made it manifest in them. God has shown it to them. When God shows you something, there is no escaping from the reality of it, and there is no escaping from the accountability of it. This is why the Bible begins in Genesis 1-1 with the reality of Creator God. Instead of developing all kinds of arguments for His existence, and then, you know, you might expect Genesis 1-1 to start with, Therefore, in light of all of my pre-arguments, it doesn't start there, does it? In the beginning, God. Well, how can you say that? Romans 1. The reality of God consciousness is already inherently present in every person. Now it says in Psalm 14, also Psalm 53, but Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none who does good. Now, commonly, this is understood as the fool saying to himself that God does not exist and therefore lives accordingly. In this view, there is no God is an intellectual position. But it could also be understood as defiance with the nuance being that the fool says no to God in the sense of a defiant no God I'm defying you. Now, given the context, a strong argument can be made that this is really the better view. The psalm goes on to emphasize there is none who does good. In other words, the whole of humanity has played the part of a defiant fool. John Phillips says, The root cause of atheism is traced in both of these psalms to moral rather than to intellectual sources. It's not that a man cannot believe so much as he will not. Amen. Thus the fool says no to God's truth, no to divine standards, no to God's authority. The fool assumes the position of defiant rebel. This understanding aligns perfectly with what Paul is saying here in Romans 1. It's not that they don't know the truth of God's reality. It's that they do not want to recognize Him. They do know and yet defy Him in suppressing the truth. So Paul's point is that mankind has a sufficient knowledge of God to make all people accountable. No exception. God Himself has made this manifest in them and shown it to them in that all people come hardwired with a God consciousness. God has put eternity in the hearts of people. Ecclesiastes 3. And he has also instilled in them a God conscious reality. Precept Austin, that which may be intuitively known about God has been placed in the mind's heart conscience of all men by God, and thus no man can claim ignorance of God. And no person can claim that God's wrath against him is unjust. You know, 
the primary problem with mankind is not a lack of sufficient evidence. We got to get this out of here. If we just give them the evidence, if we could just prove it strong enough. No, 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 no. That's not the problem. It's not a, a lack of evidence. It's not essentially an intellectual problem. But rather a moral problem, a heart problem that in rebellion suppresses the truth of God as it seeks to be autonomous. You know, self-governing. I want to run my own life. Nobody's going to run my life. Who's God think he is? God. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What an interesting paradox. Invisible attributes, clearly seen. How do you see the invisible? Well, the answer is in creation. Creation testifies of its creator. The visible testifies of the invisible. The visible creation testifies of the invisible creator. And God has hardwired us, verse 19, to make this connection. A painting requires a a painter. I heard that somewhere, right? A building requires a builder. A design demands a designer. A poem requires a poet. And creation requires a creator. Note the double emphasis in this verse on clearly seen and understood. The phrase, things that are made, is the translation of a single Greek word. That is the word poema. This word is found only one other time in the New Testament, and that is in Ephesians 2.10, where it's translated workmanship. We are his workmanship. We are his poem created in Christ Jesus. It's from this word that we get our English word, poem. Now, a poem is a beautifully crafted work of art that coordinates language to communicate the message in a profound and captivating sort of way. Interestingly, this unique word is used only twice in the New Testament, once in reference to creation and once in reference to the work God is doing in the lives of his redeemed people. God, in effect, is the author of of two poetic masterpieces. The poetic beauty of creation communicates truth about God. This has been clearly seen ever since the time of creation. And what it communicates is the truth of God's eternal power and Godhead. The awesomeness of creation speaks to the reality of a superpower behind it all. Something awesome is here, which speaks to the reality of something even more awesome behind it all. That is the awesomeness of a creator. And this is where intelligent design comes in. The whole of life is so awesomely complex and fine-tuned that the reality of a supernatural intelligence behind it all cannot logically be denied. It is It used to be that people would look out into the heavens and speak of the awesome greatness of God. And rightfully so. I mean, we do read in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Abraham Lincoln astutely said, 
I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon the earth and be an atheist. But I cannot conceive how a man could look up into the heavens and say there is no God. Napoleon, true story about Napoleon, he was on a warship out in the Mediterranean on a starlit night. And uh, as he was walking out there on board, uh, he found that some of his officers were mocking the idea of God. He stopped and sweeping his hand towards the heavens, towards the stars, said, quote, gentlemen, you must get rid of these first. By the way, Napoleon was not a, a believer, but <laughs> even he recognized this reality. The earth at 93 millions from the sun is at just the right place. You understand that, right? It was just a little too close for a good part of the week. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's in just the right place. I mean, if we were closer, we would all burn up. I mean, just a little closer. If we were just a little further away, we would all freeze. The balance of oxygen, 21%, and nitrogen, 78%, is the perfect balance for supporting life. It just happened, you know. All of this speaks of order and design. But then science began to look smaller instead of bigger. And the smaller the things they looked at, the more awesome they became. The more carefully they looked at it, the more awesome they became. Janie Cheney writes... I always love that name, right? She writes, Atoms were once assumed the bedrock of matter until uh, their protons, neutrons, and electrons gave way to particles and subparticles and quarks. And we're still not to the end of it. Weaving it all together is the God particle, long speculated, supposedly discovered, never actually seen. Yeah, pretty complex. Awesomeness of the vast universe. Awesomeness of the small atom. The discovery of DNA and the study of genetics is so profound as to blow a person's mind. And the stuff I'm quoting here, I don't even know what it's talking about. But listen. DNA contains about 2,000 genes per chromosome. 1.8 meters of DNA are folded into each cell nucleus. A nucleus is six microns long. That is like putting 30 miles of fishing line into a cherry pit. And it isn't simply stuffed in, it's folded in. If folded one way, the cell becomes a skin cell. If, if another way, a liver cell, and so forth. To write out the information in one cell, one cell, one cell, would take 300 volumes, each volume 500 pages thick. The human body contains enough DNA that if we're stretched out, it would circle the sun 260 times. Now, I have no idea, as I say, about any of this. But I do know that it is complex beyond comprehension. And yet organized in a perfectly functional manner. This speaks of a super, super intelligence, supernatural intelligence, that is beyond what we can possibly fathom with our three-pound brains. There are certain laws that every true scientist knows are true. For example... The first and second law of thermodynamics. Find me a scientist who says those laws are not true. <laughs> you won't find a scientist that says, oh, those are not true. Everybody knows they're true. The first law says energy cannot be created or annihilated. The second law says everything is breaking down. Now, this is really profound. 
and totally affirms what the Bible teaches. Henry M. Morris writes, Since nothing is now being created, the universe could not have created itself by natural processes, which now function in it. Yet, since it is now disintegrating and dying, it must have been created at some finite time in the past. You know what that does? That lines up perfectly with Genesis. And on it goes. John MacArthur writes, Except to a mind willfully closed to the obvious, it is inconceivable that such power, intricacy, and harmony could have developed by any means but that of a master designer who rules the universe. It would be infinitely more reasonable to think that the separate pieces of a watch could be shaken in a bag and eventually come to be a dependable timepiece than to think that the world could have evolved into its present state by blind chance. Indeed, infinitely more reasonable. The things that are made testify of God's sovereign power. What Paul calls eternal power. Eternal means everlasting and infinite in duration, continuing without end. Creation also testifies of what Paul terms here, as translated here, uh, the Godhead, eternal power and Godhead. Now, the word translated Godhead is really a form of the word theos, which is commonly translated as God. This word describes the quality of God, that is, the divine nature of God. It is the godness of God, if you will. One commentator says it means Godhood, not Godhead. It signifies the sum total of God's divine attributes. It's the idea of a, a supreme being who with super intelligence and almighty power has created everything. In short, creation testifies of a super powerful supreme being behind it all. And this testimony has constantly been going on since the creation. We had read for us Psalm 19, where we read, Day unto day utters speech. It's got a message. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. It's talking about natural revelation from creation. Creation's testimony to the reality of its great creator goes on day and night constantly. And this testimony is universal being declared everywhere and all the time. Nelson Study Bible, nature itself speaks eloquently of its creator. From the intricate design of the human cell to the majestic strength of the Rocky Mountains, all of God's works testify to his wisdom and power. ESV Study Bible, the entire natural world bears witness to God through its beauty, complexity, design, and usefulness. Someone as well said, all creation is an outstretched finger pointing to God. I love this story. It's a true story. I, I like true stories. Uh, Robert Jastrow, uh, an astrophysicist, wrote this. Now we see that the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view on the origin of the world. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormousness of the problem. Science has proved supposedly, proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks, what cause produced this effect? 
Who or what put the matter and energy into the universe? And science cannot answer those questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> Love it. Love it. You see, the only one that knows is God, ultimately. And what we know is what he has revealed to us. The only problem with this story is that they're really not making progress with their, with their ignorance. They're not getting closer to the truth because they don't want to find it. You know what they're like? They're like the criminal who is looking for the policeman. But they don't want to find the policeman. In fact, they're hiding from the policeman. They suppress the obvious truth found in God and his word, in creation and his word. This revelation of God puts humanity into the position of having no excuse. No one can plead ignorance. Accountability is based on knowledge. And God has revealed himself in such a way as to make the whole world accountable for the knowledge that he has revealed. Now, often people say, what about those people in the remotest parts of the world who have never heard? Well, they have enough light to make them accountable. John MacArthur says, if a person will respond to the revelation he has, even if it is solely natural revelation, God will provide some means for that person to hear the gospel. I think that's true. The Greek word translated without excuse is a form of the word apologetic, which means defense. The idea is that they are without a defense. They have no excuse. There is no legitimate way to defend the rejection of the light that God has given. Verse 21. Because, one long thought here. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here is the stated reason they have no excuse. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. This is the bottom line. They knew God in the sense that they had a God awareness. They knew of his existence. They knew of his reality, as stated in verse 20. It's one thing to know the reality of God, and yet another thing to know him in a saving way. 2 Peter 3, 5 speaks of those who are willfully ignorant. It's one thing to be ignorant. It's another thing to be willfully ignorant. They willfully reject the obvious truth that God has provided. 2 Peter chapter 2, if after they have escaped the the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. These people have known the truth of God and yet turned from it. This is the same issue in Hebrews chapter 6 concerning those who were once enlightened but fall away into irreversible apostasy. 
And then again in Hebrews 10, those who go on sinning willfully after they have received the knowledge of the truth. The point all the way through this text here in Romans 1 is that these people have known the reality of God as revealed in creation. No one can plead ignorance. There is no excuse. Note, I don't know how stronger you could say this, who suppress the truth. Maybe known of God is manifest in them. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, understood by the things that are made. They knew God. It's amazing to me how much the unbeliever created in the image of God can still know about God in his fallenness and is accountable for it. To this point, in Romans, two great emphases concerning human accountability. People are accountable for the light given in creation. God expects them to respond to it. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now we know that doesn't happen in a vacuum. But when God shows someone the truth, they are responsible for it. None seek after God. But when he comes and shows you the truth, you better bet you're responsible for it. Now, some theologians speak of lost sinners in their depravity as being just like a corpse. Because indeed, the Bible does teach that lost people are dead in their sins. That is true. However, a strict corpse analogy really does not work. You see... A corpse cannot reason or be under conviction. A corpse has no responsibility or accountability to anything, right? We don't expect the dead to be accountable. That is not true concerning those who are spiritually dead. If someone is quipped, uh, yes, if it's a corpse, it's a lively corpse, indeed. Starting with the account of Cain in Genesis 4, we see that God holds lost people accountable for revealed truth. (laughs) That's a key point here in Romans chapter 1. God in grace came to Cain and revealed truth to him. But then the onus was on Cain in terms of what he would do with it. You know, everything builds in Scripture. This is really very beginning. Everything builds on this. God comes to Cain. Cain didn't go looking for God. God God's always the seeker. He's always the initiator. He comes to Cain. And he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And his desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Clearly, God in grace warned Cain. But you know what? The choice lie with Cain on what he would do. You say, well, I don't see any personal accountability. I do. I do. And so it is with the entire world regarding the light that God has given. People are accountable for the light that is given to them. And all have been given enough light to be accountable. And here is what people are accountable to do. Paul says, These are without excuse because in their suppression of God's truth, they did not glorify God nor were thankful. Here's the crux of the issue. This is the very purpose for which they were created. 
We were created to bring glory to God. We were made in the image of God for God and His glory. To glorify God is to give Him His due for who He is as God. It is to magnify Him for who He is. This, my friends, is a lordship issue through and through. They refuse to recognize the sovereign lordship of the sovereign God. They did not glorify God. They refuse to give God the place of supremacy. They refuse to bow before him. By the way, this is not only the beginning of the issue, this is the end of the issue. Fast forward to the end of the issue. Here in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God was has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus Christ, given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. ESV study Bible, the root sin is the failure to value God above all things, so that he is not honored and praised as he should be. Human beings are foolish, not in the sense that they are intellectually deficient, but in their rejection of God's lordship over their lives. These suppressors of God's truth refuse to honor and worship him. God is seeking for true worshipers, and they refuse to do so. In other words, they refuse to properly recognize him as God. For all true believers, God is personally recognized as our God. Even as Thomas came, my Lord and my God. This is the starting point of true faith. And then they are not thankful. Natural revelation reveals that God is great and he is good. We even see this in natural creation, uh, in natural revelation. Acts 14, 17, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. And that he did good. Gave us rain from heaven. Aren't you glad that God is so good that I mean, he sends the rain on the just and the unjust? I'm glad we had some rains here a few weeks ago. Imagine if we had no rain at all this summer. Oh, boy. He did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. The sovereign God. Give us this dare. Who's the one who provides this? But the suppressors of God's truth, they don't appreciate what God has provided for them. They refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. And ultimately, this is where Savior comes in. You see, true believers recognize we are totally dependent upon God for everything. And most importantly, for our salvation. All true believers are thankful for what God has done for us. I mean, tremendous emphasis all the way through the New Testament. Uh, this is the will of God. Be thankful. Be thankful. Unbelievers are not thankful because they don't recognize the God who is the provider. True faith recognizes dependence upon God and is thankful for His provision and by way of application, most part, importantly, for our Savior. The spirit of this is really a Lord and Savior issue. They refuse to glorify God for who He is as God and they refuse to be thankful for His provision. And the consequence of this rejection is that they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart were darkened. When one turns in rebellion from the truth of God's light, then in effect they turn to futility and darkness. That's the outcome. 
Futile thinking, futile is the idea of empty, vain, useless, or pointless. It thinks about worthless things that have nothing to do with God's truth. Ephesians chapter 4, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. they got mind problems. they got mental problems. They don't think right. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Futility is often used in reference to idols, which is where futile thinking leads. Superstitious religion is a matter of futile thinking. It replaces the truth of God with all manner of false gods. You see, futile thinking no longer has moral absolutes. It's all vanity. has both feet firmly planted in midair. I mean, there's nothing solid there. They're like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that's not there. Holman Christian Study Bible, part of the wrath of God is revealed in humanity's loss of intelligent thinking. (laughs) That is true. There's a fine line today between sanity and insanity. And we're moving further and further to the level of insanity as a society. Foolish is the opposite of true understanding or insight. It is the inability to put together reality as it really is or to make proper sense out of spiritual reality. They no longer have the ability to understand reality as revealed by God. People who suppress the truth of God's light end up in crazy places. They end up with crazy ideas like evolution, which doesn't know where we came from, why we are here, or where we are going. It has no purpose or meaning. They end up with idolatrous religion that worships everything but the one true God. They end up with immoral philosophies that are deadly perverse and incredibly destructive. And there is no lasting satisfaction in any of it. When you lack God as the proper starting point, it never ends well. And again, we note that the foolish heart is not one of being deficient in intelligence, per se, but one that is morally senseless. Instead of obedience to the faith, what defines them is suppression of the truth. The heart reveals to the entirety of one's inner life, the core of one's spiritual being. Sometimes the emphasis is on emotions, sometimes intellect, sometimes the will. Leon Morris says the heart is the center of the inner life. From it, the person's direction is determined. His whole course is shaped. His basic commitments formed. In the Bible Knowledge Commentary, when truth is rejected, in time the ability to recognize and to receive truth is impaired. Well, let's wrap this up, shall we? Oh, no amen? Okay, we'll keep going. (laughs) Uh, Summary. Why the wrath of God is revealed. Present tense, ongoing. People suppress God's truth. They do so with no excuse. And the consequences are futility and darkness. I close with this true story about Sir Isaac Newton. Certainly, I don't agree with all of uh, Sir Isaac Newton's theology. But the point is made in the story. And the story is told by Marshall and Sandra Hall. And here's how it goes. Uh, That a maker is required for anything that that is made is a lesson Sir Isaac Newton was able to teach forcefully to an atheist scientist friend of his. Sir Isaac had an accomplished artisan, uh, artisan, uh, fashioned for him a small 
scale model of our solar system, which was to be put in a room in Newton's home when completed. The assignment was finished and installed on a large table. The workmen had done a commendable job, simulating not only the various sizes of the planets and their relative proximities, but also constructing the model that everything rotated and orbited when a crank was turned. It was an interesting, even fascinating work, as you can imagine, particularly to anyone schooled in the sciences. Well, Newton's atheist scientist friend came by for a visit. Seeing the model, he was naturally intrigued and proceeded to examine it with undisguised admiration for the high quality of the workmanship. My, what an exquisite thing this is, he exclaimed. Who made it? Well, paying little attention to him, Sir Isaac answered, Nobody. Stopping his inspection, the visitor turned and said, Evidently, you do not understand my question. I asked, Who made this? Newton, enjoying himself undoubtedly very immensely, replied in a still more serious tone, Nobody. What? You see, just happened to assume the form it now has. You must think I'm a fool, the visitor retorted heatedly. Of course somebody made it, and he is a genius, and I would like to know who he is. Newton then spoke to his friend in a polite and yet firm way. This thing is but a puny imitation of a much grander system whose laws you know. And I am not able to convince you that this mere toy is without a designer and maker. Yet you profess to believe that the great original from which the design is taken has come into being without designer or maker. Now tell me, by what sort of reasoning do you reach such an incongruous conclusion? That is brilliant. God has revealed himself in the natural revelation of creation. But most fully in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the only book that God has ever given to us, the inspired scriptures. The great issue in life for time and eternity is what will we do with this revelation? Will we suppress and reject it or will we receive and believe it? Jesus said in John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. The Bible is clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Will you in faith glorify God as revealed in the person of Christ and thank Him for being your Savior? What will you do with the truth of God? Let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer.